And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And, when he, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. There's something hardwired in us that just craves neighbor and neighborhood. We're created for it. And all that those two words um, denote. Because those words have special significance, right? Neighbor and neighborhood. They, they signify safety and friendship and support and love and compassion. And uh, just, it, it, they're warm words. And we crave them. We're hardwired for it by God. And yet, the amazing thing is, because of our sinfulness as human beings, and the fall that has come upon this world, we have this incredible ability as humans to corrupt the idea and the concepts of neighbor and neighborhood. Uh, I, I remember, you know, as we come into summertime and it gets hotter, uh, as a child of the 60s and 70s uh, who was raised in the deep south, uh, in our part of the city there, uh, we didn't, most, our part of the city, most people didn't have uh, air conditioning. That was kind of a luxury. And nobody had swimming pools. So to alleviate the heat, uh, you know, you went to the city pool. And our city had pools uh, strategically located. I remember as a child, I was very young, I think I was maybe like in kindergarten or so, uh, was looking forward to going to the pool one day. And uh, mom, being mom, you know, mom, like the video said, you know, sometimes moms have a t problem with uh, schedules. And uh, we were supposed to be there like, you know, maybe at two o'clock. And instead we got there like maybe around 3.45. And I'd only jumped off the diving board a few times and so, you know, swam around, was enjoying himself, having a great time when the whistle blew and they were closing down. 
and I was like, I was shocked because I was having such a great time. And mom calls me, so we have to leave, we have to go now. And uh, and so I get off and I start to dry off. And but as I'm doing this, I see other boys and girls walking into the pool area and their families, and they're getting into the pool. And so being young, I threw a temper tantrum because I wanted to stay. And of course, mama being mama, and it not being the 2000s, uh, temper tantrums weren't tolerated. And so because I had showed my butt, it got taken care of right there by the pool, right? And you could do that back in those days and not be arrested. And, uh, <laughs> but when we got back in the car, um, and I had calmed down my mom, because mom was a great disciplinarian. She didn't just spank for spanking. She always talked and explained, and she explained, son, we had to leave. You know, it was time for the black boys and girls to swim. You see, because at that day and age, uh, the white people had a time when they got to swim, and the black people had a time when they got to swim. Uh, it was uh, maybe uh, a summer or two later when I was asleep in the middle of the night and of course we had our windows open because uh, it's hot and I was woken up out of my sleep because of a ruckus and because of bright light coming through my window and uh, when I stood up and I looked out my window uh, down on the corner uh, a few houses down was a clan cross burning on this yard uh, of a white man. And, uh, but he had begun uh, dating, had a new girlfriend, and she was not white. You see, um, corruption of neighbor and neighborhood is real. And, and I'm thankful that in our country we may not have those obvious forms of racism, for example. One of the ways that we corrupt a neighborhood. And it's not as obvious as that in our country anymore, but let's not be naive and think that, for example, the sin of racism isn't still a blight upon our neighborhoods. It is, okay? And there's many other blights of sin in our neighborhoods. You, know, you just look at what the opioid crisis and the drug crisis in our own neighborhoods here in, in southeast, southwest Palm Bay and how it's destroying our communities and our neighborhoods. That's just one example and divorce, and, and just, just we could go down the list, and folks, it's getting worse, it's not getting better, because the sin of humanity expresses itself, and when it does, it destroys neighborhoods, and all that is good in neighborhoods. And so this, this religious lawyer's question to Jesus from 2,000 years ago, you know, who is my neighbor? It's as pertinent today as it was 2,000 years ago. Um, and, and in fact, not only is it pertinent, his reason for asking it is vitally important, just as important today as it was 2,000 years ago. Um, and so let's start right there. Let's look at the importance of kingdom compassion to our neighbors and neighborly love. Uh, to set the context here in Luke, we've been in Matthew, but we've jumped to Luke this morning, and, and we'll go back to Matthew next week. But um, this parable shows up in Luke, not Matthew. 
Um, Jesus, in the, in the first several chapters of Luke, uh, Jesus' deity has been established, and he's done great miracles. But beginning in, you know, chapter 9, he has started sending out disciples on evangelistic uh, efforts. And in, in, in chapter 10 here, at the beginning of this chapter, he sends out 70 more disciples, two by two, going out, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. You get your first, you know, uh, evidence of the Great Commission in, in chapters 9 and 10 where he is sending people forward to make disciples and to proclaim the good news of the kingdom and to bring more people in through evangelistic efforts. And now we come to this portion of chapter 10, and Jesus has been, he's shifted and he's begun teaching his followers what it means to be a disciple in the kingdom of God. And this lawyer is in the crowd and he's a religious lawyer. He's not like Dan Newland. He's not, you know, in an ambulance chasing and, and suing people because of an accident or whatever. He's a religious lawyer. He's an expert in the law of God, the Torah. So he's part of the religious class in that society. And so he stands up, which is a sign of opposition. He is opposing Jesus, and he asks him this question, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What an important, vitally important question, a question all of us should be concerned with. In other words, Teacher, how can I be certain that I, when I pass from this earthly realm, I will spend eternity with our Creator? Most important question we could ask, right? That's why it's still as pertinent, as pertinent today and important today as it was 2,000 years ago, right? This is the core question that's in this parable. And Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? This is a sideline. It's always a great way when you're talking to people who are skeptics of the gospel to answer them with a question when they ask a question. It reveals a lot, and it will help you as you think about talking to them. And so this lawyer answers, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You see, he's an expert in the law. And rather than give back to Jesus all of the law, all several hundred of them, he gave him the summary that was accepted. This was the summary statement, the Shema, the great commandment, right? And, and, and this is it. And Jesus' response to his answer. We can't overlook it. It's, it's important that we see how Jesus responded to him. He said, you have answered correctly. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will have eternal life. Love God. If God is absolutely perfectly the core of your being, He is the He's at the fiber and the center part of everything in your life. He is the sole focus of everything in your life. Your life revolves around Him. He's the center of your attention. And when you see your neighbor in need, Jesus says, when you see your neighbor in physical need, in spiritual need, in emotional need, in financial need, if you rush to that neighbor to meet that need with all of the energy and the strength and the focus and the determination and the resolve that you would rush to meet that need in your own life, if you put all the energy towards that person that you would put towards yourself when you have that need and you love God perfectly where he is the center of your attention at all times, 
congratulations. You're exactly right. You will inherit eternal life. You've done well. And folks, this is exactly right. This is what God requires. If we want to be in his presence, it is a perfect standard of holiness where we perfectly love him, worship him all the time. Not something else. Something else doesn't have our attention. Something else doesn't have first place in our lives. Something else doesn't have our allegiance. It's not God 99% of the time and something else 1% of the time. It's God all the time perfectly and loving our neighbors the way he's talking about perfectly all the time. And if we do that, guess what? We inherit eternal life. That's the standard. Perfection. You know, I can almost see Jesus kind of smiling as he's talking to this lawyer. And he says, you know, you know, <laughs> good job. You got it. You're right. Now you just go do that, buddy. Go on. You go, boy. Get after it. Right? And of course, the lawyer gets it. You see, the lawyer was trying to trap Jesus. The lawyer was hoping that Jesus would say something other than the law. He, he, was, he was trying to get Jesus, you know, to blaspheme in some way and to denigrate the law. And Jesus doesn't denigrate the law. Jesus actually says there is a purpose for the law. And here it is. You see, what he was doing, what Jesus did, is he isn't against the law at all. Instead, he uses the law just as it's intended to be used, to show us this incredible standard that God has if we think we're going to inherit and earn eternal life. Well, yep, this is the standard, the righteousness that is required for eternal life. <laughs> it's, it's so high. And if we think that we're going to earn it and, and do it through our own self-righteousness, well, we're, we're, we're fools. We, we're foolish if we think we can earn it and be good enough. And yet this lawyer, if you look at his answer, you know, he's, he's clearly flustered. He didn't get his trap, and he's clearly flustered. And so he comes back to Jesus with another question, and his question is revealing. His question is revealing in a couple of ways. But he, desiring to justify himself, says to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? <clears throat> When Jesus says, you've answered right, now go do it. It's, and he says, well, then who is my neighbor? By saying it like that, he's revealing something. First thing he's revealing is notice that he didn't ask about God. What does it mean to love God? He, in his mind, he feels like I've got the love and God down part. Down. I, I, I'm good here. Right? I don't need any clarifications for loving God. I'm doing that. In his mind, he's good to go. In other words, and maybe he's a lot like some of us this morning. I am Jesus. I am really good. I'm a good person. I just need a little help. I need a little clarification. I want to make sure that I've got all my bases covered. But I'm good on this, all this over here. Help me out a little bit over there. And so he asked a clarifying question. He, who's my neighbor? And what he's asking here is, what's the minimum that I got to do? Because you, obviously you can't mean I have to help everybody I see. 
You know, it can't be, I mean, there's got to be some constraints here, right? There's got to be some circle of, you know, that, some boundary that I, could, that I can draw so that I can actually achieve it. So help me define who my neighbor is. But he thinks he's got the God part down, the loving God part down. So, you know, he's religious, he's good, he's righteous in his mind, but I need some clarification. This is what's going on. And so Jesus... After explaining the importance, yeah, we see the importance of kingdom compassion towards our neighbor. Eternal life is at stake. Okay? Let's, let's, let's make that very clear. Let's don't back away from that. Let's make this very clear. Kingdom compassion towards our neighbor, eternal life is at stake here. I don't want to water it down. These are the stakes that are on the table. That's the importance of it. So now let's move to the illustration. Jesus doesn't give him a straight answer. He, he illustrates it with a story, a parable. And it's a masterful parable. Um, Jesus takes the traditional form of a Jewish story. It's normally in three parts. And he, and he uses this traditional form. He puts it in a setting that everybody would understand. He puts it on the road to Jericho. The road to Jericho um, goes from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem's 2,500 feet above sea level. And it, Jericho is about 1,000 or so uh, feet below sea level. So you have a, a 3, roughly a 30,000, 3,500 foot drop over several miles. And it goes through the mountains and, and tight passes. And that road, that journey, had become known as the Bloody Pass because it was so tight and there were so many crevices and, and caves and dark places and curves where robbers and gangs of thieves could hide that if you went down that road and you went at the wrong time or you went by yourself, you were toast. You know, you didn't go at night and you typically didn't go by yourself. So even if you went during the daytime, you went with a group of people for protection. It was a very dangerous road. And so in the first portion of the story, you see a priest. In the second portion, you see a Levite. And they come by. And this is intentional that these two people are used. Jesus, again, masterful storyteller, because at this time in history, the average Jewish Hebrew person, they, they are looking at the priestly class, and the relationship is not good. They're angry at them. They're very dissatisfied with them. And so Jesus makes the first two people in this story who come across like real twits and jerks, right? He, he uses people who the, the, most of the audience, and by the way, the lawyer was also in that class of people, right? He, he makes those two people, the antiheroes of this story, people that the, most of the people in the audience already kind of dislike. And on top of that, it's their job, man, to help this guy, right? That's their job. They, the, the Levites, they, they, they were like our deacons. They, they have the mercy fund. They, they, took, they were supposed to take money and help people like this. This is their job. And they come walking along and they see this guy. And rather than do their job, they go around him and continue on. They don't help him. And, and you can imagine what the crowd is going. It's like, man, shit, yeah, that's what the priestly class does. He does bombs, you know. And so then Jesus says, and so now a third guy comes along. 
And you can imagine what's going on along in their mind. Well, if the priestly classes don't do it, and now the guy's going to come along and he's going to help him. Who's left in our society? Well, it's the common man that's going to help him. Yeah, yeah, we would have helped him. We'd do it because we're not like those religious people at all. We'd do it. And Jesus says, and he was a Samaritan. You're talking about a mental, emotional whiplash. Jesus, I, I mean, guys, let's understand that in this culture at that day, at time, the phrase good Samaritan, I mean, that's an oxymoron, okay? An oxymoron. You know what an oxymoron is? An oxymoron is like governmental efficiency, okay? <laughs> You know, or central intelligence agency, all right? They're words that just don't go together, right? Good Samaritan doesn't go together. In the Jewish world, these two classes hate each other. They hate each other. And during this time, there had already just recently been several dozen Jews who had gone through Samaria and the Samaritans had massacred them. Uh, the, the Samaritans were Jewish half-breeds. They set up their own temple, their own relig religious system. They were in competition with the Jews. The Jews hated them. To give you an idea of how much the Jews hated them, the rabbis had a prayer that they would pray. Like we pray prayers together, like the Lord's Prayer. They prayed prayers together. They had a prayer of resurrection. And they would pray, you know, for God to, you know, bless them and resurrect them at the end of the days and the, the people. And at the end of that prayer, though, after the rabbi would pray for the resurrection of the, the people in the synagogue, at the end of the prayer was, but God, don't resurrect the Samaritans. How about that? Let me, let me just, I'm going to put it in a graphical way. We have people in here of all kinds. So let's just imagine, here's the, I want you to get kind of a visceral understanding here. So please take it for the purposes, what I'm about to say for the purposes. It would be like me standing up here at the end of the service when I give the benediction and I say, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace unless you're black or unless you're Hispanic or unless you're Mexican. You see what I'm saying? I mean, just me saying that, right? What does that do inside of Don't you inside of you? Right? Don't you go, <clears throat> right? It's so wrong. But in that society, in that time, nope, not wrong at all. God, don't even resurrect them from the dead. In other words, it would have been perfectly acceptable to the Samaritan people when that Samaritan came across that guy laying in the road and he comes along in his donkey and he comes up towards him. It would have been perfectly acceptable to the Samaritans if he had just ridden right across him with the donkey. Maybe stopped for a little while, had the donkey dance a jig on his head and then walked on down the road. It would have been perfectly acceptable. And by the way, the Jews, it would have been perfectly acceptable for them too. For the donkey, damn man, just run that dude over. Put him out of his misery. We're doing him a favor. They hated each other. And so when Jesus turns this Samaritan into the one who showed mercy, I mean, the lawyer can't even say the Samaritan at the end of the story. He just refers to him as the one who showed mercy. That's how deep the hatred goes, right? 
And Jesus makes this guy the neighbor. He turns the whole idea of neighbor upside down. Who is my neighbor? <laughs> well, if you're the Jew, it's the Samaritan. If you're the Samaritan, it's the Jew. He's turned the whole idea upside down. You know, this lawyer's thinking, you know, um, Jesus is going to say, well, the people within two miles of your home are the neighbor. And he turns it completely. Let's put this in our terms, okay? Who's your neighbor, Christian? It's that Muslim couple living on your street where she wears the full traditional Muslim dress and everything else. Who's your neighbor? All you heterosexuals in this building right now. It's that homosexual couple that lives on your street. Or that transgender person that works at your place of employment right now that you won't talk to. Who's your neighbor? White people, it's people who aren't white. And people who aren't white, it's people who are white. Who's your neighbor? You know, it's that guy who wears the Make America Great Again hat that you don't like. Who's your neighbor? It's that person who has the support plan to parenthood and it's a woman's right to choose bumper stickers on her car, all, all of us who believe in the sanctity of human life. Who's your neighbor? Republicans? I got news for you. It's Democrats. Democrats, I got news for you. It's not Republicans. <laughs> I'm teasing. I just wanted to go to you a little bit. Right? Our neighbor, all of us who don't have a drug problem and an alcohol problem, it's the people who are in the grips of addiction to those substances. Those of us who have advanced degrees of education and have been, you know, have had those blessings. Our neighbor is the person who can't even read hardly. Our neighbor is the person who's moved into our country and doesn't speak English, whether they came legally or illegally. They're our neighbor. Our neighbor, young people, says old people who know who Mr. Rogers and you have no clue. Our neighbor, all you nice people. I look across this audience, man, you guys are so nice. I mean, a couple of you aren't, but most of you are. <laughs> Decent, uh, kind of. Um, <laughs> all you nice people, you know who your neighbor is? It's that person in your life who's just mean. We all have them, right? We have that person in our life who's just cantankerous and they just, you know, they get on your last nerve and not only did he get there, they pitch a tent and they drive the stakes in as deep as they can go. Right? They're our neighbor. So Jesus turns this whole idea of neighbor upside down. He turns the whole idea of loving compassion and kingdom compassion for our neighbors upside down. It's not taking them a casserole and calling it a day. 
I mean, look at what this good Samaritan does. He endangers himself. This is the bloody pass. He gets down off of his ro- off of his donkey. He helps this man. How does he know that the robbers still aren't there? He inconveniences himself. He gets down and dirty and messy and bloody. I mean, this guy may have been laying there for a while. Who knows? I mean, probably the bugs have moved in. There's flies, maybe some maggots and fleas and other bugs that are on this guy. And he's down there holding him and working with him to help him out. And he impoverishes himself. He gives almost a month's worth of wages to take care of his medical needs. And he crosses all of these boundaries, racial and ethnic and religious and social boundaries that exist. And then he commits himself to this long-term relationship because he says to the the innkeeper, listen, here's the money up front to take care of it, but I'll be back by and anything else that he needs, it's on me. And so he commits himself to a long-term relationship of compassion and mercy for this man. He risks being stigmatized and misunderstood. He's a Samaritan carrying a beaten up, brutalized Jew into a Jewish city. How does he know he's not going to be accused of crime? I mean, how does this happen? You want, I mean, this is what it looks like to have kingdom compassion towards a neighbor. How does this happen? So much more than a wave across the street and Hi, I'll pray for you. You know, this this takes a completely different outlook, a completely different perspective and paradigm on what it means to be a neighbor. You know, back in 1968, on April 4th, 1968, Martin Luther King stepped out of his hotel room around six o'clock to check the weather before going dinner and James Earl Ray shot him down, killed him. The night before, he was supposed to preach a sermon there in Memphis. They were, they were there protesting the, the inequity and the injustice that was taking place in the sanitation department there in the city and, and whatnot. And, and he was very, very sick. He was extremely sick. And he, said he, he decided he couldn't preach the sermon. And so he asked his, his friend, Reverend Abernathy, to preach the sermon. And Reverend Abernathy, they all got there and he realized how badly the crowd wanted to hear from Martin Luther King. And so he calls him up and says, could you just come down at least and say something? And, and so uh, Dr. King came down, he listened to the sermon from Dr. Abernathy and, and then he got up and he just gave an impromptu speech, a few words. And, and it, came, it became what is known as, I've been to the mountaintop speech. It was completely off the cuff. It's a phenomenal speech. You ought to look it up and read it. And, and it's, it's interesting because at the end, the very end of the speech, it was like he knew his days on earth were numbered. And he talks about it. It's an incredible speech. But in this speech, he refers to this parable. And he likened it, likened it to what was going on in Memphis. And he says, why are the more people not getting involved when they see the injustice and they see the corruption that's going on in our neighborhoods? Why do more people not get involved? And he came with this story and he said, you know, we look at these twits. He didn't say it like that, but the, the priests and the Levites. And we want to think that, you know, maybe it was because they were racist or they were this or they were that. But he put forward another idea. He said, it could have just been that they were really afraid. 
He gave them the benefit of doubt and said it was a dangerous road. And, and this is what he said in that, in that sermon about him. He says, and so the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the good Samaritan came by and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? You see, it's a change in perspective. It's a change in the paradigm that has to happen for kingdom compassion towards our neighbors and to see people as our neighbors who we would never think of as our neighbors. Jesus is turning it all upside down. And for us to be able to fall in line with this, there, there has to be a change in perspective. He, he says to this lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. When Jesus ended the parable like that, what do you think went through the mind of that lawyer? Do you think that filled him with energy and warm, happy thoughts of joy? And was he seeing butterflies and rainbows and unicorns? How about you? When you now realize who your neighbor actually involves and what it means to be a neighbor, does that fill you with hope? Yes, I'm all over this. I got this locked down. I got news for you, it doesn't mean. Not at all. I come at this and I, I, I really thought about how do I apply this to us and, and where are we at in this story and, and what does it mean for us today? And, and, and if I come to it and I say, now you go and do likewise, I say, where do I have time to do this? How do I add this to my plate? I mean, I could just not preach and maybe I cannot have time for it all. It can, it can fill you up with incredible guilt. And burden, and I mean, obviously it's important. Eternal life is in the balance. And we see from this illustration. And so by way of application, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put forward to you the impossibility. The impossibility of kingdom compassion and neighborly love that's in this story. You see... If we come to this parable and conclude that Jesus is teaching, and the point of this parable is that we are to consume ourselves with trying to be more like the good Samaritan and go out into our city and find every example of injustice and corruption and sin in our neighborhood, and we've got to be that good Samaritan to our community, I think we've actually missed the point of the parable that Jesus is making. If we walk away from this parable thinking that, all right, let's go out, let's be, let's be energized, let's be mobilized as a church and let's attack. This is what it means to be a neighbor so we can have eternal life. We've missed the point. He was talking to a man who already did all kinds of good deeds. He was talking to a man who was of, like the priest and the Levites, 
He was religious. He was respectable. He was acceptable. There was a part of his life that was already involved in charitable works, just like who? Most of us. And yet, for this lawyer to inherit eternal life, which is the core question, and he's asking, who is my neighbor? He says, he looks at the parable. The answer's in there somewhere. The answer is you either got to be the priest, the Levite. Okay, well, those were twits. That's not it. That's not the answer. Okay, so it's the good Samaritan. Okay, I got to be, but, but you can't because the standard of eternal life is perfection. We've already blown it. You've already seen a neighbor in need and turned the other way. Amen? I have. I've already seen people in need and decided the cost was too much that I wasn't willing to pay it. I've done it more than once in my lifetime. And so have you. So we can't be the perfect good Samaritan. And God's standard is perfection. It isn't great on a curve. So this can't, so we can't be the, the priest and the Levites. It's impossible for us to be the, the good Samaritan. So is either Jesus is setting before us an impossible standard, or we're not supposed to see ourselves as the priest and the Levite or the good Samaritan. So who does that leave? Who are we in the story? We're, the, we're supposed to see ourselves not as the good Samaritan. We're supposed to see ourselves as the bloody, broken, dying guy in the middle of the road who needs a neighbor and a good Samaritan. And this is the point of the story, guys. This is the whole point that he's trying to get across to this good, righteous, in his own mind, upstanding lawyer who wants to inherit eternal life, who thinks that I've already got it locked down with God. I'm a good person. I just need some help with being good towards my neighbor. Can you help me define it? And what Jesus is doing for this guy and what he's doing for us this morning is helping us realize, no, you're the neighbor who needs a neighbor. You've been beaten up and robbed and bloodied and left for dead by your own sin and your own despair and your own inner corruption. And the only way, folks, when we think about kingdom compassion towards our neighbors, love your neighbor as yourself, the only way that's ever, ever going to happen the only way we can ever be that kind of a neighbor is if we first have that kind of neighbor. A neighbor who leaves his position of his position of honor, his position in his place of, of riches, who impoverishes himself who inconveniences himself, who dirties his hands and gets messy and endangers himself, who allows himself to be misunderstood, who stands up against the social stigmas and, and the accusations and actually pays the price 
so that he can have a relationship of compassion and mercy with us. Who is that neighbor? It's the one telling the story. That ultimate neighbor, that good Samaritan, Jesus Christ, and the only way we can ever be the neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself, is to have that neighbor as our neighbor, as our good Samaritan. Hey, in that story, imagine you're that guy laying in the road, and you experience that level of neighborly compassion. How does that change your life? Think three years later, you're going down a road and you see a guy who's in need. How does that change your life? Do you, do you look at that guy and say, ah, too bad? Or do you remember how you were laying in the road, bloody and beaten and dying, and does that compel you to move forward to that guy? who's bloody and beaten. Of course it does, because when you've received mercy and compassion that is just overwhelming and incredible to behold, it humbles you and it breaks you and it moves you to extend it to others. It changes your life. It gives you that perspective that if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? So this parable... It's important because when we come to it and we say, love God perfectly and love your neighbor as yourself, you can never do this. It's impossible. Never can do this. But folks, the good news of the kingdom is that it has been done for us. And when we repent of our own self-righteousness. And this lawyer, if he, if he goes away and he realizes, I can't do this, and he turns from his self-righteousness and his own high estimation of himself, and instead he turns to this one perfect person who has done it for him, and he repents and he trusts in him, God looks at him now as having perfectly loved him and loved his neighbor because his Savior did it for him. That's the beauty of the gospel. It changes everything. You know, Mr. Rogers was actually quite radical in his day. I know he looked pretty geeky in that sweater, zipping it up and down. He couldn't help it. He was a Presbyterian pastor. Did you know that? And it's just part of our job description to be like that. Um, he lives in Pittsburgh. He started that program, and very early in his program, he brought on a, a fellow who went to his church, a man by the name of Francois Clemens. Officer Clemens. How many of y'all remember Officer Clemens? Yeah, some of you do. And it was radical that he brought Officer Clemens on board because Officer Clemens, who uh, had been raised in the ghettos of Cleveland, his family, heritage were sharecroppers in Alabama. He'd been trained in the opera, had beautiful singing voice. He heard him singing in church and he came and he says, he started, he said, be a part of my TV program. And he said, I want you to be a policeman, a singing policeman. And, I, and, and Francois said, you want me to be a policeman? No way. As you see, Francois Clemens was African-American. And in his family history, they, they experienced the scars 
of that time in history and the injustices that were there between the African-American community and the police. But, but Fred Rogers convinced him to do it. Well, in May 1969, as the nation was in the grips of riots and walkouts and sit-ins and everything else, in Pittsburgh, guess what was going on? One of the things that was going on was protests over the segregation of their swimming pools. Whites couldn't swim with blacks, and blacks couldn't swim with whites. And so, in May 1969, uh, Mr. Rogers and his program had Officer Clemens come by on a hot day when he was, had his feet in the swim pool, and he said, Officer Clemens, come and sit with me. And Officer Clemens came, and they put their feet in, and, and near the end of the, ski, uh, the program, they, they, they brought the camera in close, right on their feet, white feet, black feet, side by side in the pool. And guess what? The water wasn't polluted. How about that? You know, 20, 25 years later, something like that, when Francois Clemens retired, from the, the program, they did this same scene again. But there was a twist. At the end of the program, when uh, Officer Clemens said, well, I gotta go, I gotta get back to work, Mr. Rogers pulled out a towel and he took the feet of Officer Clemens and he washed them before he went on his way. You see, the, the, the symbolism there is important because the message of the gospel is that our compassion towards our neighbors, it reveals the authenticity and the quality of our faith. It says something. And, and, and that's why there's books like the, the, the book of James that says, you know, don't tell me about your faith. Faith without works is dead. You don't have real faith. So this is why Jesus could say, yeah, love your neighbor as yourself. Because when you have been touched by the Good Samaritan, when you have that neighbor in your life, he changes you to become a neighbor. And it shows our faith. And so, church, may the compassionate deeds and the merciful works of our faith match the proclamation and the words of our faith. May they flow from the daily mercies that we receive from the great good Samaritan, from our neighbor. Amen. Lord Jesus, give us eyes that see our neighbor through your spirit. Give us the insight we need to know how to meet those needs. Where our, our flesh may rise up and tempt us to stay back to withhold the mercy that we have received from you. May your spirit give us the strength to say no to that sinful temptation. And instead, may we experience the grace and the pleasure of being used by you as instruments of righteousness. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for leaving your position of safety, of pleasure, of riches, making yourself poor, endangering yourself for our sake, taking on our sin, bloody, making yourself bloody and bruised and beaten so that we could be healed. And for the person here this morning who's yet to be healed, who, like that lawyer, is good 
in their mind that just needs a little help. May you help them to see, give them eyes to see that they are really that person on the road, bloodied, beaten, broken, in need of the Good Samaritan. In your name we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.